Let's pray then before we read the word of God. Loving Father, we bless you and we say thank you, Lord, as we come to read your word. We pray that, Lord, your Holy Spirit will teach us what you want us to learn. We give you praise and glory and we trust and rely on you to teach us what we need to know. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. The book of Revelation part 5, the missing dimension, the church of Smyrna. So the book of Revelation part 5, the missing dimension, Smyrna. Let's read from Revelation chapter 2 verse 8 to 11. It's about four verses. Revelation chapter 2 verse 8 to 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, This thing says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty by you, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in, into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Amen. A bit of background and context very quickly. The church in Smyrna has been referred to as the persecuted church. In fact, the name Smyrna means myrrh or bitterness. To this church, the Lord presents himself as the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. This description would, would be particularly comforting to those who face the threat of death, of death on a daily basis. Smyrna was a very prosperous commercial city where people made fortunes. Paganism was prevailing in big companies, corporations, but Christians counted the cost of staying loyal to the Lord. They did not conform to this world. They were transformed by the renewing of the minds, which allowed them to discern and understand the Lord's high calling. Verse 9 describes the condition and mindset of the church in Smyrna collectively. Remember the question I asked when I started the series. If this church was added to the mailing list, say it was the eighth church, what would God say about us? Today I'm asking the same question differently. As a church, how do we view ourselves as a church? Because this church here, they viewed themselves as poor. Yet the Lord concludes that they were rich. And we are told in the Bible, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. They were poor in spirit, they needed God. How do we view ourselves? 
how does each one of us sees himself? What does God think about us? What would have been the missing dimension of this church from God's point of view? And what do we think about ourselves? And what does every one of us think about himself or herself? Think about that. That will be really helpful moving forward as a congregation. This congregation here served the Lord. They served the Lord because the Lord said, I know your works. They served the Lord. They were persecuted in order for their faith to be refined, to be tested and refined. And God had allowed that to happen to them. Not because they had sinned, no. God had allowed. The Lord had his heart in that church. This church was poor. Not only in spirit, but probably material as well. But this church was either infiltrated or externally vexed by so-called Jews whom the Lord said they belong to the synagogue of Satan. Okay. Let's start with this easy, easier part. Those who call themselves Jews but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Again, this is a difficult one. What does that mean? Again, throughout the church history, there have been uh, different views on this one. You have amongst you those who call themselves Jews, but they are not. But they are of the synagogue of Satan. Two schools of interpretation. Number one, some believe that these people could be a could be legalistic or dogmatic Gentiles who boasted to be Jews. Perhaps Judaizers mentioned in Galatians. So, non-real Jews, Gentiles who boast to be Jews. But the Lord said they are not. They are of the synagogue of Satan. Second school of thought. These people could also be unbelieving Jews who are not spiritual seeds of Abraham. So, either fake Christians, Gentiles, who call themselves Christians and who see themselves as Jews or this could be Jewish people but unbelievers. Two schools of thought with huge implication along the way. However one chooses to understand this reality, there is one thing that cannot be mistaken. These people were blasphemers. They called themselves Jews, but they blasphemed God. 
whichever way you want to look at this, who they were, we can't escape the fact that they were blasphemers. Where do I get that from? Uh, I think it's in uh, verse 9. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So whichever way you look at this, these people were blasphemers. Now, again, should we take this literally or allegorically? You see, it's always the problem when it comes to prophecy interpretation, the book of Revelation, I told you from the outset, in the introduction, the problem is always, should we take this literally or should we take this allegorically? And each view comes with consequences on the church history. If we take this literally, it would mean these were Gentiles pretending to be Jews. And if we take this allegorically, this would be Jews who rejected the Messiah. I call that non-spiritual seed of Abraham. Now, this interpretation, if we understand this to be Jews who rejected the Messiah, this kind of interpretation carries a great risk of supporting anti-Semitism. And great Christian thinkers have used this passage against Jewish people. You are a synagogue of Satan. You're persecuting the church. You killed Jesus using this passage. I'm sparing you the names of uh, great Bible commentators who have supported this view. Now, I don't believe that this is referring to actual Jews. I'm going to tell you why. Nowhere in the Bible the Jews are, are referred to as non-Jews. It's not possible. Because these people here, the Bible says they say they are Jews, but they are not. Nowhere in the Bible. If, 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 if they are Jews, they are Jews. But here, they are posing as Jews, but they are not. This makes more sense to me. And because they are not, then they constitute a body of people, because they are not Jews, they constitute a workmanship of the devil to persecute the church. A synagogue of Satan. That to me makes more sense. So this interpretation can be seen as anti-Jewish mindset that affected and infected the church, including some highly esteemed theologians and Bible teachers. I'm sparing you the list. Can be shocking. I'm sure you begin to see where this is going. Some Gentiles promoting replacement theology want to be called themselves Jews. The church has replaced the Jews as far as God's purpose is concerned. Oh. They want to call themselves spiritual Israel. But without carrying the burden of absolute observance of the Torah. We know the Jews by their absolute desire. They actually they are born with it, in it and with it. Even when they become Christians. They still aspect of things because it's now part of their traditions. 
Now those who say the church has replaced, those who call themselves Jews, they want to be Jews, but reject the whole Torah. Does make sense? Let me mention to you some attempt in the past to do this. Well, nowadays you have the replacement theology, which is heavily supported by Islam and Palestinianism, Christianity. But you have also historically some attempts. There is something called British Israelism. In the 19th century, in 1890, a man who was a, a colonel, Garnier, I think he was called, wrote a book in which he sought to demonstrate that the British, I struggle to pronounce this, British Isles, I-S-L-E-S, whatever it is, Isles? Ah, yes, thank you. Struck a little bit. I called someone who wasn't helpful to help me this morning. You were doing tea or some job. I said, how do you pronounce this? He couldn't. He struggled. I said, okay, they will help me. The congregation will help. <laughs> I know Ireland, but I don't know Ireland. Okay, whatever it is. Pardon? It's more than one. It's more than one. Okay. If I can say islands with S, it's the same. <laughs> okay. So... Whatever it is, British Islands. That man sought to show that the British population are the genuine descendants of the ten lost tribes of Israel. And they came up with what is known as. Israelitish people. Then you have the Mormons. The Mormons came up with the idea that they too are the ten lost tribes of Israel. Now, if you think that in Mormonism you have these days people from everywhere in the world. So they will all be the descendants of the ten lost tribes. So the idea of British Israelism is the idea that it is the idea or belief that the people of the British Isles are genetically, racially and linguistically the direct descendant of the ten lost tribes of ancient Israel. This was promoted by Colonel Garnier in 1890, as I said. However, sound and modern archaeology have emphatically and categorically refuted that. And people have forgotten that idea. Then you have the Mormon, Mormons, they carry on saying they are the devil's tribes. You know, uh, by some supernatural intervention, you know, the ten lost tribes, they found themselves uh, in, uh, I think it's uh, Salt Lake City, which is the headquarter. So they migrate, they found themselves there. Verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, just like in the case of Job in the Bible, the devil is behind 
all the tribulation directed against the saint in Smyrna. Have you seen that? Verse 10, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So is the devil orchestrating that kind of persecution? But on the surface what you see, you see the police, you see the magistrate, you see normal people. You see, in, 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 in the account of Job, what we saw were normal things happening. You know, the children having a party, you know, the world falling, you know, the Sabian coming to steal. No one thinks! But the devil was behind that. And that's what is happening in the church in Smyrna. They don't know what is happening. But the Lord is revealing to them that things will happen to you. The force behind this is the devil. And we can legitimately make an inference to what is happening to the church worldwide. Who is behind that? Because the devil hates Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, if they hate you, know that they hate me before they hate you. So is hatred toward against Jesus Christ, which is the real motivation. Why? Because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Do you want to live godly life for Jesus? Be prepared, you will suffer persecution from all parts. If you want to please Jesus Christ, if you want to compromise, you can get away with it. But if you want to cling on to the Lord, live for Him and please Him and be faithful to Him, you will suffer persecution from everywhere. Verse 9. I know your works. Verse 10. Do not fear. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. Like Job, these saints in Smyrna were faithful to the Lord, but their faith would be thoroughly tested. In James chapter 5, verse 10 to 11, we read this. James 5, 10, 11 Take the prophet who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. We are in a privileged position. We are in a better position. Job did not understand what was happening. But we have the full account with us. We know the origin of his suffering. We know God's views about his life. We know what his comforters thought about the situation. We know what the devil did in the situation. So we have the full account. And the Lord is saying... Consider Job's perseverance and the intended outcome. Intended outcome. What was the intended outcome? If you want to live for Jesus Christ, if you want to commit to Jesus Christ and live a godly life, you are a battleground. A battleground.
around yourself. Your life is a battleground. Job's life was a battleground. In the end, God was glorified. God shows the enemy that there are people who can, who love me with their whole heart, regardless of what happened to them. Even in nakedness, if you take everything, they will still love me. Take everything they have, they love for me does not depend on what they have. The Lord won the battle in a job's life. We are called to consider the intended outcome in that story and live accordingly. When I told the family yesterday, I asked them, they were very sad and very uh, not quite convinced by that. When I say, I've heard quite a lot of parents saying, you know, our children are doing, talking about their own children, our children are doing quite good, then our children are, you know, moving forward because we pray. Because we parents, we serve God because of this, because of that, because of that. I've challenged my own family. I ask them, what about Job? Job prayed. Even when his children were having a party, he prayed for everything and for nothing. He said, maybe they've cursed God in their heart. That was a serious man. That was a serious man. Maybe my kids have saddened God. And he prayed for that. They went for a party when they came. He prayed. And he woke, woke up in the morning and prayed to God. And by God's standards, he was the most upright. And the Bible said, in everything, he sinned not. And judged God of no wrongdoing. Upright man. But look at what happened to him. Now I ask my children, why would you think that it's because I'm serving God? Because I'm really No. God's sovereignty. God does what it pleases him. I challenged them again when they were unconvinced. I say yes, I was in hospital, people pray for me, and people praise the Lord for them. But what about Bill Randolph, who has died? He was a better Christian than me, greater teacher, more experienced, more everything than me. And we still pray for him. The whole more people pray for me. What happened? I say, come on, understand. Let not be affected, infected by the prosperity gospel. They all asked the same question. They were all sad. So why should we pray? I say, well, let's continue to study the book of Job. We get to that. They were all sad. Why should we pray then? I say, we should pray because we need to pray. But we need to pray because it gives us dependency on God. I challenge them. I say, Jesus Christ Himself prayed. And then He said, not my will, but your will. What was the will of God? That He goes to the cross. Prosperity gospel is infecting everybody. It is uh, self-righteousness by the back door. Because I'm this, therefore this is happening. I've got promotion at work because I'm this. That diminishes a little bit the level of our appreciation of God's grace. Because obviously, whenever something bad happens, humanly speaking, and to some degree, even from the Bible, there is always uh, a, a degree of uh, assumption that bad things happen as a result of sin. That's the reason why, you know, all jobs comforter, they all say, no, 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 no. This cannot happen to a righteous person. Then you must have done something. Do you remember people coming to Jesus Christ and saying to him, look at this child, why is he suffering like that? Did his parents do something, sin or something? They don't say no. You see, because in 
human mentality, bad things happen always because we've done something. Jesus Christ said, no, nothing. It's because God will take glory in that. So that child lived for the day when God will be glorified. Different. We are called to be renewed in our minds, to be transformed, to begin to understand these things. I know these are heavy stuff. I know that. I know that. I know a church in my country, when they kneel down to pray as individual or as a church, is not less than six hours. All their knees are black, but the whole congregation is heretical. You can't convince them that they're heretical. Because you can't do the way they do things. You can't pray six hours every day. You can't do that. They do that kneeling down. And that gives them the boldness, the assurance. They are true. Everyone else is false. But we know that it's a mysticism, that's church. We know that. So, are we together in these things? Very, very important because these things will keep us humble. Even when we pray to God, we will come in a low profile. We will come humbly to the Lord who has not his mind to tell him what to do. We don't even know how we ought to pray. Come on. The Bible says. We don't even know if we pray according to the will of God. Sometimes we need to pray to seek the will of God in the prayer before we start praying. And we need to come like that before God. Poor in spirit. <clears throat> the test of our faith produces patience. Ten days of affliction prophesied here. They will suffer ten days of affliction. I was reminded that the same, similar situation happened to Daniel and his companion in Daniel chapter 1. They had 10 days of testing. 10 days of testing. So like Daniel and his companion, Daniel chapter 1 verse 14, the saints in Smyrna were overcomers and approved of God. Now the word overcomer itself, again, need to be put in the context because it's gone all over the place now. Winner, winners, overcomers, it means that. No, here, overcomer only means people who have Christ. That's it. Nothing else. No rich people, no most beautiful people. No, people who have Christ who are going to have everything. End of the story. It is said of Daniel and his companion that at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. But did, this did not happen suddenly or by chance. No. Daniel's companion were not put in a situation where they said, no, we're not going to take that, no, we're going to obey that, just like that. No. In fact, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart, in his heart, that he will not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies. You see, so the disposition of his heart already, as he went to university for three years, was already, I'm going for God. As he went for his three years in high school, his heart was already, I'm not going to defile myself. Very intelligent young man with his companion, full of the Spirit of God. He prayed, as you know. And then when the situation occurred, it found a man who was already prepared. And he said, no, we're not going to do that. What did God do after 10 days? The appearance was better than those who delight in the king's delicacy. Do you remember in the introduction of this topic, I told you about the futurist view and the historicist view. Futurist view was those who hold the view that the seven churches represent the history of the church, the church 
the, the history of the church through ages. Now, in the futurist view of the seven churches, the church of Smyrna represents a period of what became known as the church of the catacombs. Have you heard this word before? Catacombs? Good. Legalist, the catacomb. Catacombs. Yeah. So it's C-A-T-A-C-O-M-B-S. If you ever visited uh, Passion Day in, in Belgium, you will see the trenches where the soldiers were hiding. So it was like that, but it was bigger than that. Underground, galleries underground, it was the church, the underground church, in the real sense of it, because they were fleeing persecution. So in French, call it l'Église des Catacombs. I found that in English as well. You can say that. The church of the catacombs. So catacombs, it's like tombs, but it's bigger than that. And they were hiding, and they were doing all the service, the worship, there to hide themselves. So it's been said that the church of Smyrna represents that period. It was so intense. If you think about 10 periods of intense persecution from the Roman emperors, starting with Nero, persecuting the church, they had to go everywhere. When I first came in this country, my first visit in the London Zoo, they've now removed it. There was a special cage, there was a special lion there, and there was a poster, and they wrote, This is the kind of lions that were used in the Coliseum against Christians. It was written there. I wish I had taken a picture. But now it's removed, it's no longer there. So they will put Christians in a Coliseum and give them a choice. Either deny Christ or give in to the king's edict. Or else they will release lions to eat them in a Coliseum. These are reality because of Christ. Because of Christ. Dear brethren, before I continue to think about that, you know what? You may be sitting there and thinking yourself, I've been Christians for some time and sometimes I don't really see the difference. Sometimes it's so hard, you know, there are things I have to forego, there are things I'm here to encourage you. And to remind you, Barry read for us here what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I have preached to you that which I also received. And Jude said, I'm exhorting you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To contend earnestly. See, both Paul and Jude recognize they did not start Christianity. They received and they passed on. You and I, in this generation today, have the sacred responsibility to make sure that the next generation are left with the true gospel. Does that make sense? It is our responsibility. There's no time for jokes. No. There's no time for church politics. No. There's no time for complacency. No. I think it was Twila Paris who sang this is time for faith and determination. There's no time for jokes in the church. No. Okay. Now, the church from uh, 64 AD, starting with Nero, the church undergot an intense persecution up to uh, Diocletian. That is around 313 AD. Because just after that, Constantine the Great will come into play. And he will 
stop persecution. He will publish an edit for tolerance. Instead of using just persecution, he will put forward seduction. Seduction. Okay? Okay, you can come, Christian, you know, let Christian worship whatever they want to worship, do not persecute them, and the church was so. Some people were very happy, and they gave in, and they say it doesn't matter. You know, all you need is to have a baptism card. That's all. You know, and many Christian leaders bought into that. But very quickly, they realized that he came with the same title, Pontifex Maximus. That was his pagan title. And he came as the head of the church, still requiring the church to worship him. To which Christians say, no, we are monotheistic. We can't. The Bible says, no, we should worship only God. Persecution start again, in a big way. Why? Because the church of Jesus Christ refused idolatry. But you see, these days we live in, idolatry will not come like that. It will come in many shapes and forms. We need to recognize which is idolatry today. We need to recognize that. You don't need to go in any temple. It's on your mobile phone. Everything. Initiation to mysticism, to magic, to yoga, to meditation, everything. Is on mobile phone. Persecution and seduction. So why were Christians persecuted then? The persecution of Christians occurred throughout the Roman Empire beginning in the 1st century AD under Nero and ending in the 4th century AD. Originally, a polytheistic empire in the tradition of Romans, paganism and Hellenistic religion. You see all the Zeus, all the Aphrodite, all those things. So you had that on one hand, and then you had the Romans mythology, etc. But it's actually the same, they're just changing name. It's the same, the Venus, the, the, the Mother Mary, the Samiramis, it's the same. It's the same. So, as Christians spread through the empire, it came into ideological conflict with the imperial cults of ancient Rome. Pagan practices such as making sacrifice to the, to the deified emperor or other gods were abhorrent to Christians, as their belief prohibited idolatry. Wherever Christians look, they couldn't do the next step. It was either betraying the Lord or... It's, you should not have other gods. You should not worship other gods. The states and other members of the civic society punish Christians for treason, various alleged crimes, illegal assembly, and for introducing what they call alien cults that led to Roman apostasy. Christians were accused for that. They were even accused of eating blood and flesh when they had the Holy Supper. They say cannibals. They were thrown into prison for that. Anything would do to seize and persecute them. Well, I have a list here of uh, the big period of persecution, but it's irrelevant. We can, uh, can leave that aside. Just jump to number seven from 250 to 253. A man called Decius. One of the emperors, this is. If you research a little bit, you will find something called Decian, D-E-C-I-A-N, Decian persecution. It's linked to someone's name, an emperor. He gave his name to the persecution of Christians. He did more than all of them and left that name. One day, you will meet with Jesus Christ. He will give an account for that. So, many Christians were executed or died in prison for refusing to perform those sacrifices. These believers in Jesus Christ contended for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Like former sports champions and legends, 
They are, these believers are part of those who have fought the good fight of faith and have finished the race. The Bible speaks of a so great cloud of witnesses. It's like uh, England playing in the World Cup and you take all the George Best, it is, one of the great players, and you take them, you know, he's already very old, but he come to sit there and say, this is what we did in 1960, 1960, and they are motivated, they come, come and you can do it as well. That's the situation. So we have all those great heroes of faith who have gone through this field, sitting with Christ there, now looking at us. And we have their testimony, how they did it. And it's our turn. We will pass, another generation will come. Let us not grow away, we are called. To the church of Smyrna, the Lord said, be faithful until death. The Bible says, I think in uh, Peter 1, Peter 1, 4, 1, maybe, yeah. Let arm ourselves with that mind of suffering. Let be prepared. They were told 10 days, and then the Lord adds something else. But be faithful until death. If it goes beyond 10 days, you prepare to meet me. That's the most important thing. However, duration of suffering or trial we may be going through, it may take longer, it may stop, but let us see further than that. Let us have a telescopic view of our Christian life. If it takes longer, that's fine. We look to Jesus Christ. We look beyond the grave. Like former sports champions and legends, they are part of those who have fought the good fight of faith and finished the race. We have the testimony written and they pass down to us in a relay race battle. In a relay, relay race, the runner finishing one leg is usually required to pass on the battle to the next runner. But the sync, synchronization is very important. This one is still running, that one is... The, the synchronization of the pace at which they run is very important because if the battle fell, falls, then disaster. The position of the hands of the one receiving the battle is very important. Because if it falls, you know that song, facing the task unfinished, of those who fell with the torch still burning, and we pick up the torch and we continue. And other generation will do the same. Let's be true and faithful to God. He who has made the promise is faithful. We may be poor, but let's be rich in the sight of God in seeking Him to fill us with His Holy Spirit, the fountain of life that will spring unto eternity. That's the only way we can stand. We conclude. Okay, we conclude. I'm gonna come back to that uh, next week. Next week we're supposed to do the Church of Pergamos, but uh, I think we'll continue with uh, the Church of Smyrna. Be comforted and be strengthened in His might. Uh, next week, God willing, we're gonna read uh, Hebrews 11. And see for yourself the picture in Hebrews 11. What happened to the believers? Let's pray. Lord, we bless you and we give praise and glory to you. We commit our lives unto your holy hands. Help us, Lord, to continue in this race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us, Lord, to set aside every weight that ensnares us so easily. 
Lord, we pray for each one of us here that you hold our hand, blessed Savior. We are so tired. We are so weak. Help us, Lord, to continue the journey. Strengthened from within by the Holy Spirit of the promise. We pray for our young people. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony they are to the name of Jesus Christ at school, in working place. We thank you, Lord, for the battle, the good fight of faith they are sustaining. We pray, Lord, that you strengthen them. Like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they will not be defied. They will go and stand for their blessed Redeemer and ours. Lord, we pray that your will will be clear to our young people, that they will not be tossed to and fro and carried away by every wind of false doctrine. We pray for the boldness, that they will be established, rooted, founded, in the word of God and be filled with your Holy Spirit Lord we plead with you we pray that our young people today and tomorrow will be filled with your Holy Spirit to go against the prevailing Lord uh, context help us Lord we pray we pray for this church that Lord you raise up young people who will come forward to be strengthened, to be equipped, yes, to be trained up, to be strengthened in their hands, yes, to take on the challenge with Jesus Christ at hand to help and to guide. Yes, oh Lord, we pray for our elderly people, <clears throat> for the testimony they are to us yes, and to younger generation. We thank you for their steadfastness and boldness yes, as they day. Yes, May their strength be in measure. We give you praise and glory and commit this congregation unto your holy hands. We are so weak. We are without strength. We confess that we are poor before you. We know nothing and we lack discernment and wisdom. We rely on God Almighty. The mighty of Jacob have thine own way and lead us according to your will and purpose. In the name of Jesus we pray. Bless each one of us, bless the coming week, bless our families, bless as we go back home, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.